Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. So, and welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 208, Abolitionist Wales. During the previous episodes, we've talked a lot about the rise of slavery and how it benefited and stained Wales, as it did many other countries in Europe. During a period when many Welsh people employed slaves, shipped them, and sold some of the key ingredients needed to spread African slavery as well as continue to finance their wealth and on the backs of this trade. At the end of the day, it can be difficult to parse where the support and financing begins and where it ends. Even as Britain banned slavery on the island, there were still people profiteering even after slavery was banned in the empire as a whole, which was part of the conflict that raged in Britain during the American Civil War, where some of the governments supported the Confederates even when common sense said not to do so. Make no mistake, there was a moral imperative that pushed people to the better side, even as some may have gone kicking and screaming. However, even as slavery continued to benefit some, it was opposed by others who found the whole issue abhorrent and were repulsed by its continued profiteering, and they fought hard to put an end to it. They did this for a variety of reasons. Key among them was the results of the Picton trial, which we discussed a few episodes back. This forced a lot of people to reevaluate their positions on slavery and on the slave trade. Picton became the poster boy for British abolitionists, and his actions created a level of sympathy for slaves and former slaves, which triggered more and more people into action. For those not directly gaining from the enterprise, it became a dirty, unchristian thing. After Picton's case, the British government stopped slavery from entering into any of its captured colonies, as it was argued that they would not benefit from them because they would eventually have to possibly give these colonies back when the war was over, this of course being in the Napoleonic War, when they were capturing a number of French and Dutch colonies in the Caribbean. And importantly, it was also a public relations nightmare, to put it in modern terms. The idea of taking these islands had been part of the problem with the Picton case, because Trinidad was a captured colony, which they then started to justify using the former colony's nation-state's laws to justify their treatment of slaves. 
Another consequence of the Picton incident was that Trinidad became a signpost for British abolitionists. One of the first steps to abolition, at least in the modern sense, happened in May of 1802 when MP George Canning suggested that vacant lands on Trinidad, which the government had been proposing to auction off to the highest bidder, instead be limited to non-slave-based agriculture. This, Canning told the House of Commons, would then comply with a vote of 1792 that had looked forward to the gradual abolition of the slave trade. It was another baby step, but an important one, and as more and more avenues towards the British slave trade were limited by law and eventually by demand. One thing abolitionists were learning was that to succeed in this venture, they had to appeal to the moral and financial means. The idea that more slaves meant more competition worked better with limiting the West Indies' interest in slavery than trying to reason by way of moral grounds. The fact was that the twofold attack on both issues made the difference at home and abroad in bringing people on board. It was an uphill climb, to be sure, because while numbers were growing that opposed the African slave trade, it had become so endemic that the economic benefits were still considerable, as Britain turned to industrialization to fill this gap. In fact, some argued that the way that industrialization was supported came through the slave trade, because without it, there wouldn't have been a need for industrialization in Britain to meet the demand from the slave trade. This was particularly the case with the sugar trade, which was coming from British-held colonies in the Caribbean. As the demand and addiction to sugar grew, there was more and more demand for the product, which then led to more and more trade back to these places to help clothe, build tools and other things in order to help them produce more and more sugar. This, however, was balanced by a growing chorus of people from all walks of life who abhorred and came out to oppose slavery in all of its various forms. Key to this effort was the work of the MPs, members of parliament who opposed slavery. They also had to work hard against it within the confines of reality that put them at a disadvantage, because, of course, the financial gain from slavery was perceived to be stronger than the moral justification against it. So they would have to go slow and go carefully in order to gain the advantage they needed. We talked a little bit earlier about the MP Canning, who was instrumental in stopping the expansion of slavery in Trinidad and in some areas of British captured colonies. He was only the start of this. English MP James Stevens was a prolific writer and frequently opposed the sugar slave trade. Most famously, during the Napoleonic War, he created a policy to blockade the Caribbean from non-British shipping. That would mean stopping anybody going to enemy colonies, or either directly or indirectly via neutral countries. This meant it blocked, among other things, slave ships. This would also block ships that were under British control and under British command, but were actually flagged with foreign countries' flags. They would also be stopped, which would also lead to conflicts with the United States, as some of these ships had U.S. flags and some of the behaviors with the Royal Navy in capturing these ships led directly to the War of 1812, as an example. 
However, the national interests of security overcame the slave masters and their advocacy against this issue. It, in fact, may have affected up to two-thirds of the slave shipping entering the Caribbean because they would be turned back by the British. The opposition to this policy, of course, coming from the sugar lobby, couldn't find a way around the national security issue and failed to gain any argument against it. It would go a long way in convincing British merchant sailors to rely less on the shipment of slaves, and it would convince them to start to move into other areas and other fields to avoid this from continuing to happen. Welsh people were starting to wake up to their place in this question, and some were starting to oppose the use of slaves. It had become common enough that there were societies that were being formed and newspapers that were being published to oppose Welsh slavery and to inform the population about its abuse and how it affected the economic system. Relative to other places, because of the lack of urbanization, this was a much slower process to try and convince the Welsh population to get on board and to oppose would take a lot more time and a lot more effort. You'd have to reach people in fairly isolated areas. And so from a political standpoint, it was a much more slow and difficult process. Combined with that, and, and something I want to bring forward sort of separate of this particular discussion, is there is a lot of uncomfortable truths that you find in this situation. For those of us that are either Welsh or of Welsh descent or English or Scottish or Irish, have you ever wondered why so many African-Americans have Welsh surnames? Why Williams, Jones, and Davis feature in the top 10 surnames of African-Americans? Many of them were given these last names from their slave masters. Not always the case, but quite a lot of them. And so many of the names were passed down to their descendants. As someone whose last name is Williams, for example... To realize that my own surname is the most popular surname in African-Americans is somewhat jarring. After emancipation in the United States, former slaves had the option to change their last names, and thus Freedman, as an example, features prominently. But for some, remembering their past, whether for heritage reasons, in other words, their ancestor was a Williams, for example, or as a way to commemorate their freedom from people that had owned them. Nonetheless, these names were kept and they represent that awkward situation. So for everyone who might have opposed, there was always a group of Welsh people who were happy to benefit from this system and they existed both at home and in the colonies. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, 
Try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Abolitionists in Wales, nonetheless, were growing in number and in political power. Many anti-slavery societies were established across Wales during a campaign to abolish slavery during 1807 to 1838. In the decades after 1838, they turned their attention to the issues of slavery in the United States. Yolo Marganwi, for example, supported the boycott of slave-produced goods from his shop in Cowbridge, he sold only, in quotes, East Indian sweets uncontaminated with human gore, end quote. Of course, his younger siblings did not have the same level of disgust and were fairly embedded in the Jamaican slave trade, that last name Williams reaching through there as well. Quakers were from the beginning abolitionists both in Britain and in America. Welsh Quakers who moved to Pennsylvania during the late 17th century continued to be at the forefront of the abolitionist movement. One of these was a Welsh-descended American named William Dillwyn, whose family had moved from Wales many years before his birth. He had worked for an abolitionist of French origin in his 20s and became very much part of the colonial movement against slavery. In his 30s, William Dillwyn traveled to South Carolina to see the effects of slavery for himself. He would then later publish a pamphlet in 1773 with a slightly unwieldy title of Brief Considerations on Slavery and the Expediency of its Abolition, with some hints on the means whereby it may be gradually effected. He would go to London to try and influence Parliament, while his homeland began to seek its independence. He fought for the rights of slaves across the British colonies and in Britain. Even at this point, he had to do this through his connections rather than through his own means, because Quakers at that time were still ineligible to serve as members of Parliament. Eventually, working with Thomas Clarkson, the powerful MP, he would set up an organization within political players who would oppose slavery at every point. Clarkson would credit Dillwyn with setting up the map to the eventual 1807 legislation I mentioned earlier, which disbarred slave shipping into the Caribbean. Through all of this, William remained busy in England and in 1778 founded the Committee to the Abolition of Slavery, 
which spearheaded the campaign in Britain and were key to putting out a number of documents and media that would effectively bring a number of English political people, as well as the local population, into understanding the consequences of it. In 1783, he co-authored a pamphlet entitled The Case of Our Fellow Creatures, the Oppressed Africans Respectfully Recommended to the Serious Consideration of the Legislature of Great Britain by the people called Quakers. The Quakers also funded this massive public relations campaign by Thomas Clarkson against the slave trade during the 1780s and 90s. This included images of slaves being left in horrid conditions on slave ships and a specific image which was used and commissioned in coins of a slave in chains with the title, Am I Not a Brother? It became incredibly popular in Britain and was an example of the torture and lament that Africans had being shipped out of Africa to North America, but also worked with the Christian concept of prayer and the idea of everyone being a son or daughter of God in their eyes. This media public relations effort left the pro-slavery advocates apparently baffled as they could not easily fight against the image that evoked a great deal of sympathy and equated African slaves to these ideas of Christian belief. The strongest abolitionist of the late 18th century and early 19th century, however, was a Baptist minister named Morgan John Reese. Reese was a radical Baptist who believed that the end of the earthly monarchies were the beginning of millennial period, and he saw the American and French revolutions as key to bringing about democracy and freedom of conscience and freedom of person. The idea of freedom for him was not just one that the Europeans could achieve, but he saw it as a universal right which drove his opposition to all forms of slavery. Reese was writing anti-slavery poetry around 1790, calling for a boycott of sugar from the Caribbean slave owners. His desire to stop contributing to the funding of slavery mostly fell flat in Wales, but there was some sympathy for his cause. The mention that I made earlier about Yolo and his sign about not contributing to the West Indies slave trade was something that was a desired consequence, also advocating at the national level to try and convince MPs to jump on board these boycotts was also key. Reese would go on to publish a 16-page pamphlet, pamphlets of course being a very popular method to try and convince people to join your cause or to argue against or for something, and it would happen quite frequently on various sides. But this particular pamphlet was called The Suffering of Thousands of Black Men in Jamaica and Other Places Set Forth for the Consideration of the Kind Welsh in Order to Try and Persuade Them to Leave Off Sugar, Treacle, and Rum. He saw the mission of Europeans to spread Christianity amongst Africans was the key important quality that they should do, rather than to continue to enslave them. A number of abolitionists were driven by this same religious goal during this period. Their readings of the Bible were very much about making all humans free, and it coincided with the developments in the philosophical humanist belief system, which had become popular at this point, that humanity was at the center of creation, and thus, as its overlords should be 
cognizant of that and begin to offer liberty and freedom to all. He would travel to America in 1795. His site that he considered to be such a important one and a revolution that he considered to be a part of the coming of true Christian faith and worship under free guidelines and democracy would eventually lead to him being appalled that this democratic ideal had not been strongly presented with a advocacy that was fairly pro-slavery. His disillusionment at the leadership in America, such as George Washington, had made him very unhappy, and he railed against the pro-slavery movement and celebrated those who stood against it, as you can imagine. He would eventually return to Welsh enclaves in America, both happy that they remained teachable, but frustrated that his former ideal society was still clinging to what he perceived, and accurately so, as an abhorrent ideal. Unfortunately, Rees remained firmly in the minority in his homeland. For most of Wales, slavery was still something that was not an everyday experience, and for many in the rural areas, the effects of it were considered so negligible that very few were advocating to deal with it as Rees had been. However, however, it does not mean that the Welsh population did not make a significant contribution to the abolitionist movement. Far from it. Some who emigrated from Wales to the Americas, and in the U.S. in particular, were brought into the movements against slavery and had quite significant roles in those movements. One and our final example is Robert Everett, who was born in Llanasa, Flintshire, in 1791. Everett was ordained a congregational minister and was appointed to Swan Lane Chapel in Denby in 1815. Like many others, he felt a desire to travel, and specifically to the United States, and emigrated to America in 1823 to minister to a Welsh congregational church in Utica, New York. In this era, pockets of Welsh communities had risen, and Utica was considered to apparently be the unofficial capital of Welsh-American communities. He was, right from the beginning, a firm abolitionist. It is suggested that he was so in Wales, but definitely it is when he comes to America that it becomes very evident. He called from his pulpit for the end of human slavery, and this, of course, put him in immediate danger in a period where the violence on a human for saying anything even remotely close to this was very likely. And make no mistake, this man had eggs thrown at him, hymn books thrown at him, and all sorts of other violence done towards him, so much so that his carriage would be attacked, his horses injured, and eventually even his house was burned down by those who were in opposition to him. In 1838, he took charge of two Welsh chapels, Capel Icha, Capel Penminith, in the villages of Steuben and Ramsen, near Utica. It was from here that he mounted his campaign against slavery. Even as he faced threats of violence and abuse, he continued to be steadfast in his beliefs and continued to preach for the end of slavery. He would become the editor of E. Canhadwyr Americanaid, or the American Missionary. He printed anti-slavery material and had a ten-point campaign plan to enlist Welsh Americans to fight slavery. During this period of U.S. history, there were many vibrant Welsh-speaking communities, 
which then drove the demand for Welsh language publishing, and thus this magazine, this monthly newspaper, would reach a lot of people. Using this publishing arm, Everett pushed the abolition of slavery to the forefront of newspapers and magazines across the Welsh-speaking Americans. Everett thought that a united Welsh community would become a difference maker regarding the abolition of slavery. Interestingly, he received permission from both Frederick Douglass and Harriet Beecher Stowe to translate their works into Welsh and was referred to by Mr. Douglas as our Welsh friend. Douglas was a free slave who fought long and hard for the abolitionist movement throughout his life. Beecher Stowe wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, which became one of the most popular books in the 19th century in America, and was seen as an abolitionist book against slavery. Meanwhile, Everett's magazine was delivered to Welsh American homes from 1840 till 1875. He was a big supporter in trying to win new immigrants to America to his cause and would try to influence him to continue to join the movement. Everett, like many in the abolitionist movement in America, moved beyond words and against slavery in more than just words but into actions and started to be active in the Underground Railroad with his congregation. The Underground Railroad was a system whereby slaves who had escaped slavery in the South were transported typically through the northern half of the United States, away from slave states to avoid capture, and eventually into Canada, where they would be saved from any sort of influence by slaveholders. He would move during the Civil War to call fellow Welsh Americans to join the Union side of the Civil War to fight against slavery as part of a moral crusade, something that actually went against his re previous pacifism against fighting in wars in general. As stated by Banger's university professor, Jerry Hunter, he probably did more than anybody else to radicalize the Welsh-speaking Americans and to enlist them into the anti-slavery movement. Recently, Everett was honored by the National Abolition Hall of Fame and Museum, where a great deal of this research actually comes from. He was a key player in motivating Welsh movements in America against slavery. So as we look at the end of slavery in the British, what would become empire, keep in mind that there are advocates against it running and continuing who are Welsh-born or Welsh-descended that influenced the American abolitionist movements that created and built relationships with some of the biggest figures within the abolitionist movement in America and continued to feature in writing against it and working for African Americans as much as they did for Africans who were transported to the West Indies. All of these things and all of these influences are the positive side of all of this. For every negative, for all the horror, for the abuse, for the terrible travesty of profiteering off of slavery, we do have examples of people who worked against it and across different lifestyles and relationships. And so these are the kind of things that are great to be proud of, but always remember that for every good side, there is a dark side. For every good thing, there are bad. And some people enjoyed the fruits of their ill-gotten labor quite a very long time, and we have to be cognizant of that too. So with that, 
I thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great day. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Welsh History Pod or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. Or if you'd like to help contribute to this show, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Anything is wonderful and accepted and loved by me. And thank you all very much and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Until then, take care. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Welsh History Podcast is a member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. To find more information on them, you can do so at evergreenpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next? My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The Siecla, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The Siecla, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.